Well, good evening, everyone. And this is normally the point where I introduce a distinguished speaker. Um, this time I'm introducing a speaker without it being a distinguished speaker. Um, but let me first of all say uh, it's almost exactly a year. It's a year and one day since I started as president. Um, I can't believe it. <laughs> and, um, and just to say thank you to everyone around here who've made uh, it such a fantastic year for, for me and Cesara. We've really enjoyed ourselves. You've been very warm and welcoming. And we find ourselves very much at home here at Wolfson. So thank you very much. So let me um, start, if I may, with two personal stories. Um, in 2010, I was what's called the European political director in the British Foreign Office. In fact, Nigel, like Nigel here used to be one of the ambassadors on my patch at that time. Um, and one of my briefs was Gibraltar that famous rock at the mouth of the Mediterranean transferred by Spain to the UK in the early 19th century and what diplomats call an irritant to the bilateral relationship. It was my role to represent the UK in what were called trilateral talks between the UK, Gibraltar and Spain. Now for Spain, this was a great concession. Their traditional position was not to talk to Gibraltar directly, and only to talk to us, the Brits, about Gibraltar, without Gibraltar in the room. The Gibraltar chief minister of the time was a great, um, was a great master of detail and a great master of dramatic emotion. And at one point, he declared himself shocked and outraged and offended by something our Spanish colleague had said. He got up, he stormed out of the room, saying the talks were over. But did he really mean it? Or was the drama a show designed to break the rhythm of the negotiations and give him time to shift position with dignity? Well, I thought it probably was the latter. And so after leaving a few minutes, I got up, went to his room, coaxed him with a face-saving formula, which allowed him to return a few minutes later to the talks, which then went swimmingly well. There was plenty of common ground, but human nature made it complicated to arrive there. Just another day in the diplomatic world. And remembering that episode, I was taken back a further 35 years to the front room of my family home in South London in 1975. Now, when I was a teenager, my mother, I, and my sister lived together in London. This was obviously stressful for my mother, since she was working in an inner-city school as well as bringing us up. My father was away from home on a Royal Naval ship, and my sister was going through all kinds of growing up pains. All that stress led to crosswords and tears between my sister and my mother, what you might call a breakdown in relations and negotiations. And it was then my job, somehow, to imitate Henry Kissinger and to undertake shuttle diplomacy between the two parties, however long it took, until they came back to the same room and we could resume our happy 1970s lives. Because I knew, too, that they wanted to be coaxed back into the room. There was common ground, if only we could find it. So you could say that diplomacy has been in my blood, finding the common ground, keeping the channels of communication open. 
Well, this series of lectures, of which tonight's is the third of five, has tried to look at what diplomacy is going to be like this century. We've already heard from Koji Tsuruoka, Japan's former trade negotiator and current ambassador in London, about the centrality of the Asia-Pacific to this century as the heart of US-China relationship, which will define global power for the century, and the location from next year of over half of the global economy. We've heard Yamina Karitanyi, Rwanda's outstanding High Commissioner in London, 25 years on exactly from the Rwandan massacre, talk about the way success in Africa this century will be about breaking free of the donor-recipient mentality and how to balance democracy and development effectiveness. In a few weeks, we will hear from one of the world's leading and most original science diplomats, Peter Gluckman, who's one of those credited with the concept of chief scientific advisor to prime ministers and who will talk about science diplomacy, the global fight against contagious diseases, climate change and other transnational scientific challenges. And then finally, in October, we'll be hearing from Nick Burns, one of the greatest US diplomats, currently at the Kennedy School of Government, expert in the values-based and rules-based diplomacy which has steered the post-war world and which is unarguably under serious assault from a whole range of fronts. So tonight I want to start not with a great thesis on 21st century diplomacy, but some of the lessons I personally have learned, including by watching some of the masters and mistresses at work. Diplomacy is fundamentally about how we work with those who are different from us and how we identify where we don't differ so much or at least can understand each other. The Irish playwright and novelist Samuel Beckett memory, memorably talked about language as a cataract, making communication itself bumpy and jumbled. And diplomacy, I think, is all about smoothing down that cataract and getting the water to flow less confusedly. Some of this is small detail. Some is understanding whether or not you really are trying to change the world or simply take a position for domestic consumption. I want to say a little about how the best diplomacy often requires more negotiation at home than abroad. Uh, and I then want to say a little bit how this century, this coming century, the classic post-war dualism of diplomatic practice, the realist school against the idealist school, is being replaced and may have been replaced by a new and more fundamental dualism between rules-based and power-based diplomacy. So let's have a word about personal diplomacy. When I applied to the Foreign Office, um, the great Peter Lord Carrington, who died in 2018 and who Chris Patton describes as his best boss ever, had just resigned as Foreign Secretary in the wake of the Argentine action in the Falkland Islands. I noticed that whenever on TV he came into a room, he had his jacket buttoned up like this, and as he sat down, he undid his jacket button and sat down, which gave an imperceptible sense of a man both very confident and very relaxed. Uh, and so I, as a 21-year-old, tried to do exactly the same thing, and it didn't really have the same impressiveness as on a foreign secretary, but it did teach me that the greatest diplomats are deliberate 
about the smallest things. So good diplomacy does involve understanding all those little things which make up your interlocutor's judgments of you, both conscious and imperceptible, and interpreting all the evidence which their behaviours offer you of their good faith, or their nerves, or their anger, or their shock. Understanding whether a smile means your interlocutor is happy or awkward depends upon the culture. In Asia, it's much more likely to be the latter, awkward. In Europe, the former, happy. And in Russia, a smile often means and is seen as weakness. Understanding whether that chief minister of Gibraltar really was leaving the room in disgust or really wanted to be invited back. Understanding whether my sister really wanted to be upstairs angry in her room or whether she wanted to come back downstairs. And sometimes when a person displays anger, it can be a clever tactic just to change the dynamics of a discussion, putting them at the centre of the power games rather than anybody else, as President Donald Trump can do very effectively. In diplomacy, the words we use can be extremely bland indeed. The professional will often try to give away as little as possible during a negotiation. So you need to know when you're negotiating air rights or arms reductions, if a person is smiling with both their mouth and their eyes or not. Whether their crossed arms and crossed legs indicate defensiveness, I am not going to give you that, or tension, I fear you're winning this game. Whether they're leaving pauses in the conversation, like that, whether that is aggression, I want to make you feel ill at ease, as quite a number of elderly African leaders have done when I've been in the room with them, or whether that pauses consideration, as in <coughs> Japan, where leaving space in conversations allows you both to think and take your time and is intended as an act of kindness. Whether they have a tell, the obvious clenching of the hand, which indicate they really are angry but don't want you to see, or whether they repeatedly cross and uncross their legs because they're on the back foot, as it were, or whether they are scratching the nose because they're lying. So, in the diplomat's toolkit, that ability to at least try to interpret faces and bodies is as useful as it is to a poker player in Las Vegas, though sadly it won't earn you as much money. As for the practice of diplomacy, the key point is that the best diplomats aren't necessarily the most diplomatic. They just use styles which work on that day, in that context, with those people. In Japan, which I know well, calm, polite clarity is essential. In much of Africa and the Middle East, a style which puts a personal relationship front and centre is absolutely necessary and sometimes to the point where it's not obvious to a British participant that anything has been achieved at all. In dealing with Russia, as Nigel knows, uh, China, and perhaps now with the United States, showing strength is key. Saying to a Chinese official what you think he or she wants to hear doesn't get you respect from Beijing and is more likely to confirm in their mind that they have you exactly where they want you. In the EU, 
or in NATO, in the Commonwealth, the culture of negotiation is fundamentally based on being and looking constructive, very often with an appeal to common values or the common good. I once attended a NATO summit with new members from the East. Consensus was emerging around an issue, but one new member was standing out against it. The Secretary-General quietly urged the representative to understand that unless this was a matter of critical national interest, now was the time to fold with dignity. And behind the scenes, they were told that always ensuring that they had constructed a ladder to climb down was an essential part of NATO and European diplomacy. Now, this may not fit with the current view of plucky British sovereignty, but it has for more than six decades been the way in which peace is kept. It's been backed up in the European Union by something called the Luxembourg Compromise, which meant that any country could cite the Luxembourg Compromise and they wouldn't be pressed further. And the paradox is that precisely because member states had this right, they very rarely chose to use it. And it was only used 10 times between its creation in 1966 and 1981 when it came to an end. So the challenge in diplomacy is when those two cultures, the strong diplomacy and the consensus diplomacy, meet and just don't understand each other. When the East European state joins NATO and can't understand why its normal behaviours are no longer acceptable. Or equally, when a negotiator from a consensus country visits China or Russia and offers a concession and discovers that China or Russia pocket it and move on rather than using it as a prelude to mutual concession and agreement. And it's not surprising that this leads to bad feelings. Now, there is a whole field of emotional diplomacy, which I think has yet to be fully explored. And I'm indebted to Todd Hall of St Anne's College here in Oxford for the phrase emotional diplomacy. I should add, he's just published a book with that name, which I'd encourage anyone with an interest to read. Anyway, all of that is a long way of saying that good diplomacy means understanding the culture, norms and rules of behaviour of both the country you're working with, in some ways the more straightforward part, and the culture, norms and rules of behaviour of your own country, which is often much less easy to see in full. Because as you'll know very often, we're more perceptive about others than ourselves. I remember one very domestic example of getting this wrong. When I first moved to Pakistan in 1994, I wanted to buy myself a car. The Japanese used to make a great little car called the Suzuki Meran, which is a little less robust and a little less spacious than a Fiat 500. And it was famous for being sold without a seatbelt. This you could purchase as a luxury item at a 100% VAT rate. So very few of us actually did. The conversation reached the point of bartering. The salesman set his price. I counted with another price, but to my mind, very subtly and with a mild joke, suggested the price would include the seatbelt for free. He accepted my price. All was done until I realized that he'd completely missed my subtle seatbelt deal. I just hadn't put it clearly and confrontationally enough. And I ended up feeling upset because he, I thought he'd broken the trust I thought we had. And he was upset that I hadn't spelled my conditions out clearly enough. All in all, it was a mess. 
And had I understood that the British can be much too subtle for their own good, I'd have, had, I'd have been much more explicit and probably got a better deal. Well, you'll all have your theories about the British character, um, but among the lessons I think I've probably learned about how to deal with the British, I would include first, they are congenitally, we are congenitally indirect in speech, but we'll often think that we've spoken straight and frankly. Uh, they distrust the use of emotion in diplomacy and really aren't good at dealing with it. So an interlocutor can use histrionics or bullying and that can often embarrass the British, embarrass the British into a corner. The British really are very pragmatic to the point not just that the French despair but where appeals to principle fall on deaf ears. Though I should say I remember one continental European diplomat in an EU context saying that he was amazed how often the British objected in principle to something that had come out of the Commission. Um, the British are excellent at humour, but humour really isn't much good if others don't get your humour. So a British speech which opens with humour is regarded by the British as an endearing icebreaker which establishes trust. But to a Japanese or a German interlocutor, it's more often seen as a sign of a lack of seriousness, which can undermine trust. So the fact that I started my speech today with a little humorous personal anecdote will have worked well with some of you, but others will have felt it probably indicated I wasn't quite the serious speaker you may have been expecting. Well, some of you will know the story of the British ambassador to the United Nations. A New York magazine in the 1960s asked the Soviet and the American and the British ambassadors in New York what they wanted for Christmas. And the Soviet ambassador wanted the march of global socialism, and the American ambassador wanted a world of liberty, and the British ambassador said that for Christmas he wanted a box of crystallised ginger. Um, now the question is, does that endear him to you, or does it actually undermine your sense of him as a serious character? So one way of thinking about diplomacy is that very personal and emotional sense, how to interpret others' behaviour, understanding how you come across, how to know whether you operate in an environment based upon consensus culture or a more confrontational culture. And these are all timeless skills. But another way of looking at diplomacy is systemic rather than personal. So let me start at home. It was always an old-fashioned and trite criticism that the British Trade Department looked after trade, the Environment Department looked after the environment, the Defence Department looked after defence, and the Foreign Office looked after foreigners. They don't. They look after British interests overseas. But the extent to which foreign policy is about what happens at home isn't often enough understood. The founding editor of The Economist, Walter Badgett, wrote an outstanding book on the British Constitution in the 19th century, in which he talked about the difference between the dignified and the efficient parts of the British constitutional makeup. The efficient were those which actually did things and made a difference, so fundamentally the government and parliament, and the dignified, the monarchy, and much of the symbolism. And his point wasn't to denigrate the dignified, but to understand that for a constitution to work well, you needed both parts to function smoothly and you needed to be very clear-minded about which part was which. So I would argue that foreign policy is very similar. There is the efficient, the actual deployment of peacekeepers to a war zone or 
actual trade negotiations or lobbying a foreign government which leads them to introduce legislation to end the death penalty. And to be efficient, you have to know what the scope of the real world is. You have to be pragmatic to achieve your ends as well as ambitious. And then there is what Badgett would call the dignified, the theatrical, what I might nowadays call rhetorical diplomacy, which is not really that interested in changing facts on the ground, but really more with setting out a position. Now, sometimes this can be entirely reasonable. A small European country will not be able to change, say, the actions of North Korea, but it is decent for them to set out their views on a North Korean nuclear test. A British minister asked by a member of parliament about her views on a natural disaster in the South Pacific can express solidarity and compassion without many means to change the situation. Being rhetorical isn't always a bad thing. Grand rhetoric can summon audiences out of a sense of helplessness and make them realize that, yes, we can. Sometimes rhetoric is a great thing if it's passion and logic persuade people to expand their sense of the possible or increase their sense of responsibility. I do think that any diplomat and any politician should learn the tricks of the trade from the Greek schools of rhetoric. Devices such as aposiopesis, which is pausing mid-sentence for effect, or the clap-trap, the three phrases like faith, hope and love, or liberté, égalité, fraternité, which almost force the audience into applause. But there are also occasions when rhetorical diplomacy is not clear-eyed and believes its own rhetoric. When it's easy and popular to condemn an action by a foreign leader whose intentions are good, but whose room for manoeuvre and survival are seriously constrained, and I think Aung San Suu Kyi is here. When it's easy and popular to criticise someone who therefore finds themselves compelled to fight back, making a bad situation worse, and I can think of Michel Barnier or, in the old days, Jacques Delors. Or, worst of all, in the current climate, describing a complex situation as simple, with simple remedies, when in fact it can be deeply intractable and persistence and tenacity are more effective than rhetoric. Think perhaps of Syria or Congo, or dare I say it, British membership of the European Union. Of course, we too operate in a world of political constraint. One friend of mine from a developing country said that in his country he had the freedom of speech, he just didn't have the freedom from arrest after using his freedom of speech. <laughs> uh, there are also things which European and North American governments and politicians cannot say or do and then stay in power or in office. It's unacceptable in public to try to understand the motivation of terrorists. You are immediately branded terrorist sympathiser. It's unacceptable, I think, in public to try to understand what led Tony Blair to take us into Iraq. You're then called an apologist for the war. It's pretty difficult here in Oxford, in public, to understand why the British people voted Brexit. You're branded a Brexiteer yourself. These are perhaps the limits of democracy, and I'm certainly not foolish enough to try to make any of these cases in public today. But I do think it would be a helpful and an honourable task at home for our political leaders to expand the realms of the possible and to increase our room for manoeuvre so that we can do more which is effective and not unhelpfully rhetorical. So 
We need to be as clear-eyed as we possibly can be whether we are really trying to make the world a better place or whether we are primarily signalling our virtue, whether we really want to be players in serious situations around the world or whether we want to be in the spectators' stand shouting at the visiting team and even more loudly shouting at the referee. And that leads me to my final thoughts on diplomacy this coming century, this present century. If being a player is a good metaphor, the key issue now in 2019 is what are the rules of the game? And indeed, are there rules of the game? Now, it'd be fair to say that the post-war world was divided between the West, the Soviet Union and its allies, and the developing or third world. The West was dominated by the US, and as Martin Wolf of the Financial Times recently put it very well, US policy had four attractive features. It had appealing core values. It was loyal to allies who shared those values. It believed in open and competitive markets, and it underpinned those markets with institutionalized rules. This system was always incomplete and imperfect, but it was a highly original and attractive approach to the business of running the world. Now, the relations between the West and Soviet Russia and its satellites were tense and complex, but the one thing both sides strived to achieve was to make the relationships to a certain degree predictable and hence less tense. The stakes were very high. Both sides held firm for many decades to their values, political and other, and both treated diplomacy and foreign policy as the ultimate strategic contest. The big debates in diplomacy theory were between the realists, the Kissingers, the, the Andre Gromikos, and the idealists, the Carters, more recently the Robin Cooks. The realists argued that their job was to advance national interests and not export values, though they were happy to use the idea of values for many cynical purposes. The idealists argued that without a moral compass, foreign policy would lead to endless conflict and that the post-war global system was perhaps the greatest ever example of the diplomacy of idealism. And sadly, until the Brandt Report in 1980 and well beyond, the developing world scarcely entered the minds of people in those other two worlds, other than as a battleground for that original Manichaean struggle between the two blocks. Well, fast forward, that was the world I, when I joined the Foreign Office, that was the world I was in. Fast forward to 2019, and it is, of course, an entirely different picture. One of the astonishing things about 35 years of being a diplomat is that you can have lived in two such entirely different worlds. Now, I would argue that the two biggest schisms in diplomacy now are between strategic and transactional approaches and between rules-based and power-based diplomacy. Let me explain a bit more what I mean. Uh, President Xi of China is a strategic thinker. Prime Minister Abe of Japan is a, is a strategic thinker. President Macron of France is a strategic thinker. All of them weigh up their national interests, opportunities, risks, and they set a course. And you may or may not agree with them. So Chinese actions to advance their claims to the South China Sea Islands are driven by a long-term objective, claiming them all, which is realistic, even if against the interests of almost everybody else in East Asia. Japan has interests in bringing to an end its 70-year state of war with Russia. And those interests are clear, even if it leads them 
potentially to take decisions which bring them into conflict with allies such as the US. France has a vision of its place in Europe which has been pretty consistent for over 50 years. And looking back at the Cold War, the actions of both sides from most of that period were driven by an entirely clear strategic vision of their global aims. So when I became a diplomat in 1983, the Berlin Wall was still up and the Soviet Union was still apparently monolithic. Transactional diplomacy is quite different. It emphasises deals and it emphasises moving on. It worries less about precedent and more about opportunity. It is, in many ways, much more nimble on its toes. And Presidents Trump and Putin are the modern masters of transactional diplomacy. It's easier to outwit your competitors if you are transactional. Russian annexation of Crimea was remarkably bold and a rapidly seized opportunity. And so too the engagement of Russian troops in Syria while the Obama administration considered its position. And President Trump's visit to Singapore last year to meet Kim Jong-un and his urging, his wonderful urging on Chairman Kim to think about this from a real estate perspective. Imagine those hotels on your beaches and taking that executive decision to postpone US-South Korean military exercises was done at a speed which previous US administrations would have found impossible. And similarly, recent US decisions, extremely bad decisions on Jerusalem and the Golan Heights. And I have to say that through 2018 and 2019, transactional diplomacy has been growing and has been dominant. Advocates of strategy and critics of transaction are on the back foot this year and probably next year too. The transactionalists can point to several successes. And yet, and yet, much though I think consistency can be an overrated virtue and constructive ambiguity a friend, this flexibility goes too far and in the end will never win against a strategic diplomacy. And I hope it's not simply because of my age that I believe in the time we need to deliver a strategy and distrust the brevity of transactional approaches. Strategic diplomacy understands the need to develop long-term allies, to build long-term rules. You can't steal territory by arms in Crimea or the Golan Heights, and to accrete an international culture. Transactional diplomacy believes you can just move on after your deal. All the evidence suggests that you can't. Do please come and listen in October to Nick Burns from the Kennedy School because it seems to me that he is one of the most powerful voices making the case for strategic diplomacy this century. And that leads to my second schism between rules-based and power-based diplomacy. Now, rules can sound constraining and dull. Surely we should burst free from our shackles and take back control and innovate. Well, there is clearly a difference between a rules-based approach to diplomacy and, approach, and an approach which argues that the current rules should be unamended. The Bretton Woods system, the current UN Security Council, the G7, the way that the Asian Development Bank operates, all these are systems which were designed for a post-war world which has now changed and they too need to adapt. The G20 
more fairly represents the full range of global power. The permanent members of the UN Security Council need to be updated. The position of China in the Bretton Woods system needs to be strengthened. The key point is that the system still needs to be based on rules, even if updated. The risk is that if current rules are not updated, those disenfranchised will look at other ways of running their international relationships. Indeed, I would argue that the best diplomacy involves changing the rules of the game, but not undermining the idea of rules of the game. Now, the international rule of law is a fragile creature. And some of you may remember this picture from being in London in the summer of 2011, when all of a sudden riots broke out, broke out across London, starting in the north in Tottenham <coughs> and over 48 hours spreading like wildfire down south as far as Croydon in the deep south where I, I was in the south. And suddenly, <coughs> Londoners realised that law and order in London depended critically not on the number of police officers on the street, but the sense among citizens that law and order should exist. It was a construct we all chose to believe in. And for those of you who don't remember this, this was a march by people who had gone out to start cleaning up the broken glass after the rioters. And it turned into a statement that even if the police weren't there, we believed in law and order as represented by our broomstick. Well, the international rule of law is similar. And over the years, the body of precedent has grown. Nazi fugitives from justice are found and tried. The European Union fines member states who do not honour their legal commitments. The backing of the UN Security Council becomes required for international military action for some countries. An international criminal court is established to investigate and try those accused of crimes against humanity. To the extent that these things work, it's because nations and governments choose to make them work. They don't wish to be treated as pariah states. They wish to develop international reputations as good global citizens. It's the power of reputation and moral suasion rather than gunboats and police forces. Good citizenship rather than an assertion of independence. Well, in an interview recently, Henry Kissinger was both characteristically profound and characteristically Delphic. He suggested that President Trump may be one of those figures in history who appears from time to time to mark the end of an era and to force it to give up its old pretenses. But, he added, it doesn't necessarily mean that he knows this or that he is considering any alternative. It could just be an accident. And later he suggested that what the president might be presiding over was a collapse of the international rule of law. And if so, America would become a geopolitical island flanked by two giant oceans and without a rules-based order to uphold. Such an America would have to imitate Victorian Britain, but without the habit of mind to keep the rest of the world divided, as Britain did with the European continent. So to avoid that fate, if it is a fate, the international rule of law needs nurturing. I've seen a number of occasions when UK media have called for international action against a particular egregious behaviour by some unpleasant state. Successful international action based on international law enhances the reputation of international law, but any action which is unsuccessful undermines and diminishes international law. And the wise diplomat, the wise politician, 
is one who asks not just whether such an action is right, but what its chance of success is. Because a morally right action, which doesn't achieve its end, isn't, in my view, noble, but actually impedes our ability to do morally right actions in the future. Grandstanding isn't just short-termist, it also undermines our long-term capacity to enforce the rules. So the best diplomacy is not just about understanding the rules of the game, it's about ensuring that there are rules of the game. If diplomacy is about building trust, and if trust is about building predictable behaviours, then the rules are the heart of predictable behaviours. Rules bring moderation, and moderation is, I would argue, the most advanced, and if I can use the phrase, the most civilised state a nation can reach. I think we should all remember the words of that great British-Irish philosopher and parliamentarian Edmund Burke, admittedly a spokesperson for conservatism, when he said, rage and frenzy will pull down more in half an hour than prudence, deliberation and foresight can build up in a hundred years. At least in international law, he was spot on. And after my years in professional diplomacy, and in the midst of one of the most severe challenges to the international system I have encountered, one where force and extremity, where rage and frenzy are in such abundance, that quiet and ineluctable force of a rule book is one of the most powerful tools we have in international relations. Let me end with a story, and then I'm very happy to take questions, a story that will hopefully illustrate these themes. So for some years I was based in Pakistan, and because of the war in Afghanistan, that messy decade which followed the Russian withdrawal and before the organised brutality of the Taliban regime, it wasn't safe enough to have a British embassy open in Kabul. So the British embassy in Kabul was in Pakistan. And we would travel there from Islamabad. Now, as some of you will know, Afghanistan has a remarkably diverse geography. We, as British people, know the south pretty well. We know the Khyber Pass, we know the sharp mountain peaks, we know the valley hideaways. But the north of the country is very different. Mazar-e-Sharif, the capital of the region, sits on a plain, and the Oxus River flowing down from the high Himalaya marks the Afghan border with Uzbekistan to the north. And over the centuries, that flat plain between the Oxus River and Mazar-e-Sharif, originally infertile, has developed an elaborate series of irrigation channels, bringing food and prosperity to the region. The most significant decisions in these communities have always been who gets the water. When water goes one way, when the other. And the people responsible for those decisions were the religious and political leaders of the community. As they got the balance right, the irrigation network spread, and with it the ability to make a living out of a desert. They kept the channels open, and they kept the water flowing. With the Russian invasion of Afghanistan and then the Mujahideen uprising, all of that changed. The easiest way to undermine authority was to kill those in charge of water. Short-term deals were done to direct water one way or the other. But the long-term effect was to guarantee that the whole area would dry up and return to desert, which it has. An elaborate system of balances, moderation and authority, 
was replaced in a matter of a few years by a lawless, immoderate and partisan power structure. The channels clogged up, the water stopped flowing and we returned to desert. Well, I hope that's not a very good metaphor for the world over the next decade, but I fear it might be. As of now, the channels are still there, water is still flowing, we are not in an international desert. There are still leaders and governments with a visceral and passionate belief in taking time in rules and in strategy. But we do need to cultivate them and the diplomats, young and old, some here tonight, who support them in making the wise choices our world needs. The unassuming business of diplomacy, the critical work of diplomacy. Thank you very much.